Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 268. With that number, we look back at the 268th game in the history of the U.S. Men's National Team. It was played at Soldier Field in Chicago on September 9th, 2001. The U.S. women beat Germany 4-0, and a 21-year-old Abby Wambach came off the bench to make her senior international debut. More than 18 years later, the team has played well over 500 international games, and it's going to be very interesting to see which young players will earn first caps under new head coach Vladko Anonofsky. So two guests today. First, I spoke to Yael Averbush. She is the executive director of the NWSL Players Association, and she played every season of NWSL up until this season, where she last, towards the end of last season, she put her her playing career on hold for health reasons, but she's thrown all of her energy into being executive director of the Players Association. So we talked about how that got formed, what her role is, and what the new compensation guidelines for NWSL players means long-term. And we also spoke about the business she launched uh, a few years ago, Technave Football, um, and how she hopes to help other players, NWSL players, launch their own businesses if, if they want to do the same. Then I spoke with Meredith Cash, who writes about sports for Business Insider. Meredith uh, was on site for the NWSL championship game, and and since the Women's World Cup has had more and more opportunity to cover women's soccer. So we talked about several different uh, fun women's soccer topics. So enjoy. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Yael Averbush, the director, the executive director of the NWSL Players Association. Yael, I'm so excited to have a chance to talk to you about the new NWSL compensation guidelines and a lot of other things. Um, so, you know, but first, I want to hear what what you've been doing this year. Let's start. Let's start with that. Yeah. Well, a lot of things, to be honest. <laughs> Um, no, but I think, uh, you know, this has been such an exciting year for women's soccer and I know we started off the season. This is my first, um, season not playing myself. So it was a little bit of a different year for me, but got right into being more involved with the growth of our WSL players association. I went to every team during preseason and spoke to the teams about what it means to be part of our organization. And um, I got the chance, obviously I watched all the games during the season. I got the chance actually to go to the World Cup final. So I saw wow. you know, a lot of my friends and teammates win the World Cup, which was uh, unbelievable. And then, um, you know, it just, it's just gone from there. There's been excitement, I think, at every, tur- every, every week, pretty much every, every turn, we're seeing women's soccer and exciting news and now the new um, compensation guidelines for the upcoming year with NWSL. Um, just, I think, a lot of progress, and a lot of exciting things going on in the women's game right now. Well, talk about how the Players Association formed, because it, it became official last year, correct? Um, so we, there were a couple of steps in this process. But I, knew, I knew nothing about this when we started off. Uh, we became an official union last year. The league recognized us as a union. Uh, and it's this whole process that I mean, I'm, I'm very new to. So I'm kind of learning as I go. But prior to that, a couple of years ago, 
in 2017, actually, we announced that we had formed the organization that was called the NWSL Players Association. So that's kind of how it works is that, you know, actually a number of years ago now, it might be up to five or six years ago, a few of us veteran players started to talk about creating a formal organization so that we as players could have a voice and um, express the things that were important to us. We obviously understand that the growth of this league is focused on sustainability and will be slow and progress needs to be incremental. Um, but that being said, it's important that we're able to express our opinions. And there were things going on in the league that we didn't want to get out on Twitter before we gave the league a chance to work with us on them. And so right. um, from there, I really, uh, I got a lot of wonderful support and advice from the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association, from the MLS Players Association, and learned, like, you know, here, here's how this happens. You first need to form an organization, and it's, um, and here's how you do it. You need a constitution and bylaws and all this stuff that was very foreign to me. So we actually formed our organization in 2017 officially, but prior to that, we had been working to organize the players just internally as, as a group of players. We had a couple representatives on each team to kind of form this chain of communication so that we could properly understand what was going on on each team. Make sure we got information out to all the players, but also we could get information from what was going on on the ground in each market to then bring up to the league and say, you know, hey, here's something you might want to look at. So. Um, it's been kind of in the works for a while, but yeah, definitely more official in the last couple of years. And now we're officially a union. And what led to you becoming director of the Players Association? Yeah, well, to be quite honest, um, I realized last year when I was playing in the league and kind of heading up the organization that it wasn't quite appropriate for an active player to be in some of the conversations I was in with the league office. You know, we have a really good relationship with them and a very open, collaborative uh, communication, but it's just, it's weird when you're actually playing in the league and having some of those conversations. So I, um, I, I worked to write up a job description and get some funding for a part-time position for somebody to lead our organization from the outside. And then it turned out that I realized, you know, because of some health issues that I probably shouldn't play myself. And like anything, it took way longer than I thought to actually get the job description set up and get the funding. So it ended up where we decided as an organization with the group of uh, the leadership group of players, as well as myself, that I would take that role uh, for this year, which is great for me personally to stay really involved with the organization, but also um, stay tied in with the league. You know, it's, it's kind of a tough transition having literally been on a team my whole life since I was seven years old. Uh, this was the first year that I wasn't. So it allowed me to stay really plugged into the league and still kind of participate in my own way. And how do you, on a, on a weekly basis, say, work with the elected officers of the Players Association? Yeah, so the way it's set up is we have a, what we call our executive board or executive committee, and it's um, Brooke Elby as the president. Tori Huster is the vice president. Nicole Barnhart, or Barney, as we all know her, is a um, secretary. And Emily Menges is the treasurer. So we have those four. And then underneath, we have two official player reps per team. So what we do as an executive board is we work together really often on, um, you know, everything from our communication to the players. We started an internal monthly newsletter this year. We started a, um, an alumni network where we can, you know, keep track of what everyone's doing that's come from and that's currently part of our women's soccer community and share job opportunities, um, insight on things, whatever it is. So we started that. We're always working on things in addition to our 
communication with the league and the more obvious things the union will be doing. We're sourcing opportunities for players. We're trying to support players in making second sources of income and really looking at the player experience as a whole. So we are working together quite often on all kinds of things relating directly to the league and then some of it just in supporting our players to do the things they're passionate about alongside playing in the league. That's great. And then now with the the new compensation guidelines, what what does all that mean for the NWSL players? Yeah, so th- we feel that these changes moving forward are extremely positive. Um, like I said before, we understand that salaries will go up incrementally over time. These things are going to take time. Um, and everybody within the league, the ownership groups, the league office, um, everybody's struggling. So we don't, um, we're not really focused on those kind of areas, the traditional things that a union might go after or be um, inquiring about. We're really focused on the player experience, like I mentioned, and the stability of our players. And this is something that I felt myself through my playing career, the amount of times I've moved, never knowing if you're going to have a contract for next year. Um, even something as simple as when our, uh, the way our paychecks worked in the past, where we received pay for a certain number of months, and then in the off-season, literally have no income. So all of these changes, having to do with players being paid throughout the year, being provided housing throughout the year so they can stay where they are if they want to, and really put down roots in, in their market and the place where they play in that community, um, in addition to that, being able to sign a contract for more than one year or being able to negotiate to have a guaranteed contract where you know that you're going to have work for the given amount of time that your contract is was laid out in your contract. These things um, have huge implications on the experience of the players. And so I think people might focus on things like the uh, minimum and maximum salary going up, which is great news, or the salary cap being increased, again, great news. But the things that we feel actually impact the lives of the players the most have to do with the stability of your lifestyle and your ability to feel secure in the work you do have, then be able to create connections, um, other work opportunities, start your own business, whatever it is, on the side of that, parallel to your playing career. And so that players can choose to leave their playing career when they would like to, not because they have to. And I think that the the housing element, I mean, from an outsider's point of view, I think that is so huge because one of the things that I remember pretty clearly about the WSA is those players were in those markets year round. They were on an annual salary um, and they were with the team's you know, it with their clubs, whether or not it was in season, which meant that they were able to do in the off season, you know, events to promote their clubs. Right. And like you said, put down roots and establish uh, local relationships. And, you know, so I think that's a positive of, you know, for, for the clubs, but like you're saying, it's also positive for the players where it's like, so you're not moving. So, well, there you're saving relocation costs. Right. You know, um, yeah, the the moving thing is hugely taxing, not only because it's expensive, but emotionally. And, and like you pointed out, this is also beneficial for the club for this league to thrive. We need players integrated into the communities in which they play and forming relationships, coaching in those communities, speaking in those communities. And that will bring people 
to continue to bring people to the games, I believe. So I think like this is a hugely beneficial to to the growth of the league, not just because it creates a better experience for the players, but like you pointed out, it it's good for the clubs. Yeah, and and since uh, you know, I, I like that the new compensation guidelines kind of clarified for for a lot of fans that like, yeah, part of it's about the salary, but it's also all the things the behind the scenes that. Uh, in a way, make the salary even more than it is. Like if you actually yeah. fact, factored in, well, if they, you know, add the housing, add, you know, travel, insurance, all, all that kind of stuff. It's it's like, it's not about, wow, it's an amazing salary, but it's like, look, these things are covered that like you're saying, give you stability. So you're not yeah. like, oh my God, what am I going to do when it's the end of September and I don't have a team? Yes, exactly. And I think, it, you know, those kind of things go a long way. Um, it's the financial piece, but it's also the mental and emotional piece. And I think it's so huge to have have this happen before we really start the next wave of expansion, because something that I've talked with people off and on is like, oh, you know, if the league expands, is, there real, is the talent pool there? And I feel like, yeah, the talent pool's there. It's been there for a while. But kind of like you're saying, it's like, letting people choose to leave the game when they want, as opposed to when they have to. So these compensation guidelines mean more and more people should be able to, you know, say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give pro soccer a try. And, and there's a lot more opportunity in it than there used to be. Yeah. And I think the thing is we want um, this game to get to the point in the women's side where it's about what happens on the field, the decisions to try to make it as a pro go into how well are you able to perform on the field and what can you contribute to a team in this league? And, and the players who aren't able to make it as pros, it's because they weren't quite up to par on the level or they didn't get that, the level of consistency. Those are normal professional athlete type decisions that clubs have to make. Um, right now we have, we have, you know, excellent players who have exited the league or maybe not even joined the league for reasons outside of the fact that they couldn't cut it on the field. And so I think we need to, we need to shift that and we will continue to shift it to where um, the best players in our country will have the opportunity to be professional soccer players. Now you played all three, all three seasons of WPS and every season of NWSL up until this year. So how have you seen the women's pro game change? And what, and what comes next? I mean, what, what evolution do you want to see happen? Yeah, I think some of the coolest things I've seen um, with NWSL, obviously WPS left all of us with a pretty sour taste in our mouth. And I think it was sad, not only because it didn't survive, but because this was, it was the second time a league right. survived. So it left us with this kind of, I think everybody um, surrounding women's soccer is, is, kind of nervous, especially the people who were around as fans, as owners, as players in those previous two leagues. Um, it makes you feel nervous because you, un- you have a deep understanding that this, we want this to be here to stay, but it's not necessarily a given. And um, the way WPS was formed and the financial structure and the focus on stability has made made it harder for players. Players get paid less. The the facilities are slightly scaled down. There there are all these things that we hear about, we read about that that makes it not as glamorous. But I think that being said, we, we scaled it down to a point where now we're seeing things build. And it's a really cool thing to see year after year. First of all, the fact that we don't talk about it enough. We're in a seventh year 
about to go into about to be eight, 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 yeah. Yeah. And so I think we don't celebrate those things enough. A lot of the focus is always on how can it be better? And, and everyone knows that great progress needs to be made and can be made, but there are a lot of things we can celebrate. There were a lot of sold out stadiums this year. We had Portland set the record for average attendance in the women's game. I mean, that's phenomenal. Over 20,000 people at every game. Um, and, and it could go on the list. I think the coolest thing for me that I've seen are players, and this goes back into player stability, players becoming household names because of their club. So we have our U.S. women's national team stars and international stars that people know and they watch in the World Cup once every four years, the Olympics once every four years. But now we have household names that are linked to clubs that maybe aren't on the U.S. national team. And I think that's one of the coolest things. You know, I'm thinking about uh, Danielle Colaprico in Chicago. Yes. You know, Chicago has a number of them. I'm thinking about a Sarah Killian in, you know, for Sky Blue and uh, Amber Brooks in Houston and Kaylee yes. Ojai in Houston. And, um, and, and just the list goes on. And I think, you know, Beverly Yanez and Lauren Barnes in, in, uh, for Rain FC. And the more players we can have on that list, to me, the more it shows we're succeeding because these are players who the fans know and they they think of them as players for that club. And that's where we're really seeing the culture of women's soccer shift in our country because up until now, it's been all about the national team. And that's natural. We have an incredibly successful, inspirational national team, that, which is wonderful. But at the end of the day, for this to um, really have longevity and um, for us to change the blueprint of how women's soccer has worked in this country, the league needs to be the stable entity that everybody knows. And then the national team is, you know, an extra bonus that we can celebrate because we all love to celebrate, um, celebrate world champions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and that's, you know, a a change I've, I've even seen here in, in Houston, you know, last summer when, Kristen Press came to play for the first time since she had chosen not to play for Houston. I was surprised, but then a little bit pleased that the Dash fans were booing Kristen Press. And it wasn't rude. It was just a sports booing, right? It was clearly, it was nice to see that shift where it's like, hey, you're a national teamer and we love you for that. But, you know, we're Dash fans. You know, when you put on your USA jersey, we're rooting for you. When you're wearing yep. your Utah jersey, we're not. And and it's it's like it's to to see that that shift where I remember the first season of the Dash very clearly, where any time a big national teamer came, the cheers for for that player was more oh, than yeah. for the for the so Dash. Yeah, you know, yeah. I played in when I was playing in Kansas City, and we played against it was Portland at the time. We would have like Portland Alex Morgan jerseys when they came to play us. So I was like, "You guys are our fans." Yeah. Um, so I, like, I get it, but it was it was totally like the loyalty just just evaporated immediately. So I think it, it is a good point. It's another level within our league that where um, when it comes to club play, you support your club regardless of if you're a favorite player from the national team, maybe on the other team. <laughs> right, right, and then. Separate from all the players association stuff, what else are you involved with um, soccer wise or do you have time for anything else? Well, actually, um, if you can imagine it, my main job is actually my own business. Uh, It's a technical training app for players. It's called Techni Football. And that actually is my quote unquote full time job. So I was prior to working on the players association, I was an active player in NWSL and I had launched my own business on the side really aimed at um, allowing players to experience the game the way 
I was fortunate enough to experience it growing up and kind of creating that individual relationship with the ball, which is really what I love most about the game. So that, um, that takes up the great majority of my time. And my work with the Players Association is, well, it's quote unquote part-time. <laughs> it's supposed to be part-time, but really, um, you know, as you can imagine, this all gets very blurred. So for me, my, my current life is I actually have a, this is a new thing I'm doing. I have an alarm that goes off on my phone two times a day that reminds me I need to relax for 20 minutes two times a day. So that's, uh, that's how I get in and time to relax at this point. <laughs> it's an effective method, by the way, if anyone needs help with relaxing. That shows you how my day goes. <laughs> well, and, and it, well, it also tells me that you're highly qualified to help, you know, other players learn how to explore business opportunities separate from playing an end of yourself. If someone yeah, came to you and said, how do I start my own business? Yeah, you could, yeah. You could tell this, them. it's a huge passion of mine to help the players while they're playing um, continue their education, whether it's through the coaching courses, which has been awesome at U.S. Soccer and NWSL has now offered the C license course to our players two years in a row. But through, yeah, continuing your education, um, thinking about the things that you want to do parallel to what you do on the field. And, and as professional players, um, we're tired. We have to take care of our body, but we do have time. We have time where you can sit by your phone and sit by your computer and do something productive. And so big thing I, I urge players to do is, you know, think about those things and start to create something on the side, uh, whether it's, you know, now we're working with uh, US Youth Soccer is a big partner of ours, and we're working with them and created internship opportunities and appearance opportunities for players. So whatever it is, and every player has different interests. You know, my my passion and my side, my side hustle, so to speak, that's become my real hustle, um, is very involved in the game. But some players have um, interest in photography or, or doing things that are totally different. So as a players association, um, I, my great hope is that we can support all of the players to pursue those things and, and support one another in the pursuit of those, support one another's businesses and continuing professional development alongside our playing careers. Well, and, and last question, because I, I have to ask, since you played for Vlatko Donovsky for three seasons at FC Kansas City and a little bit last year with the rain, what did you think when you first heard that he was going to be named head coach of the U.S. Women's National Team? Yeah, well, I'm so happy for Vlatko. You know, I um, Vlatko is the, the best coach I've had as a professional player, and he is incredibly hardworking. And I think, um, you know, Coming into that job, obviously, there's been huge success. And, you know, Jill Ellis breaking records, two World Cup wins in a row. I mean, that's a tough, tough shoes to fill. Um, but I think Vlaco is incredibly well prepared. And he's somebody who I respect. And his, his knowledge of the game, his knowledge of players is so deep. And, um, He's, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm I, now I feel really nervous when it's game day because you know today is game day and I woke up and I was like, oh, it's Blacko's first game because he just, he, he's one of those people I think everybody agrees deserves success and it's it's great to know because I know how hard the players on on our national team work and how they cover every single base and every detail and Blacko is somebody who will do that on the coaching side. There will not be one stone unturned and I guarantee you he probably didn't sleep last night very much and today he's probably sick to his stomach waiting for the game because he's thinking about every single play that could occur in every tactical situation for every player on the field uh, but you know that's, that's what those players deserve and I can tell you he will make every player who's part of that group 
a better player. So it's part of it is the player selection, but then, you know, these, these are top world-class professionals who still want to get better and are eager to, to get better. And, and Blacko, you know, is one of the best I've ever seen at that. Well, Yael, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with me about the new compensation guidelines and the Players Association and good luck with all your work on that in the future. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Meredith Cash from Business Insider. Meredith, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about, of course, soccer, but also what you do for the Business Insider. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I'm pumped to be here. How did you end up in sports journalism? Yeah, so uh, it was kind of a winding road, but I played sports in high school and um, fairly competitively, but I knew that I didn't want to play at least uh, varsity in college, uh-huh. and so nor nor was I good enough to play D one to be fair. But uh, I, I I know that I know that feeling. I know. Yeah, that. I was I was decent. I could kick the ball, but I didn't want to. Uh, I, I couldn't keep up that way. But I um I wanted to stay sort of connected to the sports community I guess and I I wasn't sure I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to go about that but I knew that I always loved to write and so when I I went to Duke I wound up at Duke and I knew that the Chronicle did a lot of sports coverage um and so I immediately hopped on board there and they sort of threw me into the deep end and I fell in love with it so all four years I was covering basically all of Duke's sports teams. And then I graduated. I took a, a fellowship role at Business Insider, which is where I am now. Um, and I was on the sports team. And I've bounced around a little bit at the company, but now I'm back full-time on sports. And it's, uh, it's really exciting. So it's been, a, it's been kind of a long journey considering I haven't been out of college for all of that long, but (laughs) I was, I was going to say, it's it's like, it's not that long when you graduated a year and a half ago. (laughs) Right. That's right. (laughs) But I guess guess it's been a meandering journey. That I would say that (laughs) that's probably the better way to phrase it. So what's your role for business insider right now? Yeah. So um, I came back onto the sports team and we don't, we're all, the entire sports team, we're all generalists, but which essentially we could be covering anything um, in the world of sports, but I have a specific focus on women's sports and college sports. So lots of uh, U.S. women's national team, WNBA, um, NWSL coverage, um, and then like Olympic sports, it, it really runs the gamut. And then in college, it's college football, men's and women's college basketball, and, you know, any anything that pops up. Really. So there's, there's, there's no off-season for you. There is no off-season at all. It's great, <laughs> though. It, it's, I'd rather be busy. It keeps, it keeps the days short, you know? So tell me what the impact of this summer's Women's World Cup was on, on your work and maybe assignments you were getting. Oh, yeah, it was huge. So I think 
I think the Women's World Cup kind of put everyone on notice across a, a whole bunch of inter, industri, industries. Excuse me. And so I think I think there's just a a new there's just a whole new set of eyes on women's sports generally, and it's amazing how far that reach has been. I mean, the the WNBA saw a spike after the World Cup, and I don't know if you can really credit the two, if you can really connect the two, but I just think that everyone is sort of looking there, and that, that, has, uh, that has translated to who's clicking on our articles and who's interested in, in women's sports. So there's there's an added incentive to be covering them more. Um, and I think specifically with soccer, um, the NWSL obviously saw like massive, massive crowds after the World Cup. And people are way more familiar with, with the names from the women's national team. And I think it's been a really great gateway to invite people into following the NWSL. And so I've been able to cover the NWSL much more as a national, like broad facing publication um, than I ever would have been as a result of the World Cup. So then it probably wasn't too much of a difficult conversation with your boss to say, hey, I want to go to Cary, North Carolina for the championship game. Not too bad. It wasn't too hard a conversation. I think it would have helped if the rain got through because everyone wants to see what Megan Rapinoe's up to. But uh, right. it, regardless, it was it was pretty easy for me to say, hey, listen, I, I want to get my feet wet here and, and be there in person. Well, especially when all four playoff teams had players from the Women's World Cup, you know, regardless oh, really? regardless of who's in the final or regardless of who wins, you know, there's, there's that angle as totally. well. Sam Kerr doesn't hurt either. <laughs> so so going to the final I mean, what was your focus on what kind of stories are you looking for from the angle of business insider right so we we don't really write game stories as much as many other publications do so i like to write primarily uh sort of human interest stories I wrote one that was just sort of taking people through what it was like to be at the final. And it was very visual, lots of photos of the crowd and the types of people who were there and all the different activities at WakeMed, um, which was great. And I think is a, a good way to show people what the NWSL is all about. If they couldn't, if they've never been to a game, especially the championship game. Um, but I, in terms of more, you know, team and, and actual player-based coverage, I wrote a story about um, Julie Ertz, and basically it was a reaction story based on one of your photographers' um, very, very smart or, or well-placed uh, photo and, and video catching, I guess. Yeah, capturing um, Michael Cox. Yeah, one of my photographers captured an incredible moment of Julie, you know, putting her head on Rory Dames's shoulder and, you know, in tears. I think it was before she went up to get her second place medal. Yeah, I think so. They were all in line. And I mean, all of the, understandably, all of the Red Stars looked pretty deflated, but Julie took it harder than anyone. And so I, based off of that video, I basically wrote a story that was like, Julie Ertz wanted it more than anyone else. And then after the game, um, in his post-game press conference, um, Rory basically 
said that, you know, if, if I feel bad for anyone, it's Julie and she, she wanted it more than anyone else. And she, she was going harder than anyone else. And I thought as someone who was watching from the stands, um, that much was evident. She, she doesn't give up for anything and she, she fights like hell. Even the video from when they had the hydration break. And I remember TV was showing, uh, both of the benches and, she was all business, like just had a whole group in front of her. Just like you can hear what she was saying, but the expression on her face communicated, you know, the same thing that Rory Dames said. It's like she wanted more than anyone else. It was so like, come on, we can do this. We're in this. Totally. Come on, you know, like just yeah, amazing. I'm not sure there's a better competitor in the world, frankly, than Julie Ertz, and that's basically what Rory was saying as well. And it was surprising a little bit to me because she, she keeps her composure so well, typically. She's such a hard fighter, but she's, she's got it together. When she got that yellow um, late in the game, I think it was more frustration than anything else. But it, you could tell that the passion is always there, no matter what. She's never, like, she never looks dejected. But when you give play. when you give 110, 120% like she did, like sometimes there's nothing left post game to give you that energy to like you said keep keep it together like it totally. you know it, it you know like I and I like how my photographer handled that moment where he captured it without really intruding on the moment right well that's the best way yeah he crushed yeah. it yeah well and and speaking of something else that happened in North Carolina your own Duke Blue Devils made the NCAA championship game while you were there that's so, right. so did you did you get to go to that game and cover that game? I did not actually. They sent one of my colleagues, but I was on the the. I think I was actually taking the LSAT, which is you know, <laughs> that's a story for another time. But um, yeah, we've we've evolved since then. But um, but um, I did get to tune in. Um, and I was on the beat, so I was really, really disappointed that I uh, I couldn't attend. Um, but you know, they were they were always a fun team and amongst the most dominant at Duke. Not that we don't have our our pick of great sports teams, but um, they they were always the best. They were so fun to watch, and you know, I always say that I had a chance to cover the men's basketball team and. It's very cool, but the the amount of access you get relative to to other sports and specifically women's soccer, it was night and day. I loved being able to like actually get to know the players and interview them, and you know, you you get such better stories by being ingrained with with what the team is doing. Now, do you follow any of those players who played at Duke who are now? In NWSL, I mean, have Absolutely. you, you kind of like keep an eye on their careers? Yeah, it's uh, it's really fun, uh, especially like Amani getting the call up to the national team is is awesome. That was, I know that that was sort of a wild card, but she's especially because she's she's listed as a defender, which I've never seen from her before. But she's a she's a stand up girl, and she's she's a fantastic player and just athlete generally. So I'm sure she'll rise to the occasion. She's fantastic. Well, and just watching her this season kind of in more of a defensive role for Sky Blue, but at the same time getting up on those wings in the attack, you know, it's it's like 
I, I never would have thought she would have gotten the call with this camp. But when right. I saw when I saw the list, I was like, oh, like, OK, I think I think I can see what Vlad Kodanovsky's seen. You yeah, know, it's like, totally. That's, that's kind of cool. Well, and, and speaking of NCAA athletes, you had um, a, an article recently about how NCAA is now going to allow student athletes to earn revenue off their own likenesses, which is frankly huge. Because I remember so clearly uh, 2015 Women's World Cup, that was the first year that they allowed, that they had women in the FIFA game. And I remember um, NCAA made the Canadian players who were still playing NCAA soccer, the, you know, they had to pull their images out of the game, even yes. though they were, even though they were making no money from that. And, right. and I'm just, I'm like, how can you control that when the person's not even making money off of it? But just, yeah. So, so tell yeah, me, about, tell me about that story. Yeah, so uh, just generally the reach of those rules is astounding, like you just mentioned about the FIFA game. It's just, it, it, tr- it like transcends everything. And so it's exciting to see that the NCAA is moving in the right direction. Um, it's interesting because they made an announcement maybe last week, two weeks ago, I think it was last week, that, that essentially said that they, it was a big pivot for the, for the organization and it basically said we're we think it's time we need to move forward in the right direction and we need to allow student athletes to profit off of their name image and likeness which essentially means that they have power over their own uh marketability um which is huge and you know my personal opinion is that's that's the right answer you should be able to market yourself um and so it's it's very exciting, but there are a lot of people who are skeptical just because the the statement that the NCAA put out was pretty vague, and it was just like we're we're moving in that direction, and so they want athletes to profit off of their name, image, and likeness, but they also want to want to maintain control of certain aspects of that. So it's it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and whether or not logistically it can work. But I think, I think the legislation in California and the upcoming or the, the legislation that's coming through the pipelines in, in many other States has sort of forced their hand in a major way. Um, and it's, it's an exciting time to see how these things play out. Yeah. I'm just, I, I was surprised stunned actually when i heard the news because it's not something right. that that i felt that they were gonna give in on um at least not not anytime soon so i, I think that, yeah, that, that was, that's huge progress definitely there was really no indication that they were they were coming close to bending on the issue i i i think it's the right answer i don't think they had much of a choice but i think i think it was only a few months ago when mark emmert who's the president I think the president of the NCAA, um, he he came out with a statement that was pretty much like that will never be in line with what the NCAA does. And so this was this was a major pivot, even even if naysayers are saying it's it's not far enough and it's we don't have the actual concrete evidence of what this will look like. The fact that they're even acknowledging that a change needs to be made is huge. 
And then last topic for you, kind of moving from NCAA back to international soccer, we've got uh, an Olympic year coming up. And of course, Olympic qualifying will be held in the U.S. uh, late January or early February. Um, How much do you get to cover that? and, And what kind of angles will you be looking for? Oh, yeah. I mean, I... First of all, I'm pumped for it. Second of all, I will cover it. I will definitely be covering it. How much remains to be seen and whether or not I can actually be in attendance for those games is also up in the air, but I would love to be if, if that's at all possible. So if my editor is listening, send me. Um, I think that most of, I mean, it depends, but I, I definitely think... Uh, you know, the storyline of how Blacko takes this team and and how he shapes it in advance of the Olympics is, is fascinating because he really doesn't have that much time. Um, and I was listening to your last episode, and I think you were saying basically these next few games in November, the two games are not that they're all wash, but how can you expect him to really have his team in shape when he just hopped on? Right. Um, So it'll be really interesting. I think those qualifying games are going to be very telling for where the team heads, not just for the Olympics, but even down the line further than that. Um, There's there's a lot of change happening, so it's exciting to watch. And I'm exciting. I'm excited that you know, you get to cover it, but from a slightly different angle, right? Like when I saw your story about, about Julie Ertz and saw Business Insider, it's like, oh, this is great that there's regular women's soccer coverage coming from this angle, right? Like, because, you know, you don't only need the game coverage stories, you need uh, other kind of angles. And there's so many fascinating angles to women's soccer. Exactly. I think it's really important if if we're talking about the growth of um, not just the NWSL, but interest in women's soccer generally. I think I think we've seen other leagues capitalize on the personalities within their within their ranks. Like the NBA is Mm -hmm. great for for taking the individual players and amplifying their voices and and focusing on stories that really aren't about the sport at all. It's just about the people. Um, and I think those are sometimes the most interesting and it's the best way to get people hooked. So I wrote about Julie, as you said, I wrote about how Sam Kerr didn't even know that they were announcing the NWSL MVP until <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally five minutes before I was talking with her at, um, at like media availability on Friday and did any of us know that was going to be announced I think it was on the schedule but the schedule was kind of in flux to be fair right and so so I said oh yeah like how are you feeling and she was kind of like what do you mean and she's she's kind of very even keel anyway (laughs) right but I was like, how are you feeling about it? And she was kind of perplexed. And we were like, well, we're going to find like, what out are you talking five about? minutes. And she was like, she was like, oh, cool. <laughs> and then she won and she was kind of like, oh, cool. News to me. Yeah. Never a dull moment in NWSL for women's soccer. Definitely not. Well, Definitely Meredith- not. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to talk women's soccer and, uh, you know, keep up the, the great work with Business Insider. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Right, time to wrap it up at the back four. Well, CONCACAF held the Olympic qualifying draw, so finally we know the two groups, who's playing whom, and where, when the games will be played. Check out CONCACAF.com for more info. Group A will be the USA, Costa Rica, Panama, and Haiti playing their group games in Houston. Group B will be Canada, Mexico, Jamaica, and St. Kitts and Nevis, who will play their group games in Edinburgh, Texas, which is basically the Rio Grande Valley, basically spitting distance of the border. (laughs) Uh, They'll be playing at HEB Park. And then the semifinals and final will be at what used to be StubHub Center. Now it's Dignity Health Park Center. Anyway, it's the home of the LA Galaxy in Carson, California. Group stage begins February, excuse me, January 28th. Semis and final are February 7th and 9th. Of course, all of those will be televised or streamed somehow by NBC Sports since NBC has the rights to the Olympics. Um, And ticket information should be coming out soon. But before Olympic qualifying begins, after the November friendlies, Vlako Nanovsky, the new head coach, he will have a December camp for non-Women's World Cup players who get mandatory rest time. So there should be like a week-long camp. Uh, It'll be really interesting to see who he calls in for that because it does not look like uh, the U.S. will have any official friendlies before uh, they start preparing for qualifying in January. Meanwhile, all the college conference tournaments wrap up this weekend. Most tournaments uh, having their championship game on Sunday. Many of those televised live or stream live. You can check out my list at keepernotes.com. And then Monday, the NCAA bracket for the Division I National Tournament will be announced live, usually Monday afternoon. Uh, So keep an eye on NCAA.com. That tournament culminates with the College Cup in San Jose, California on December 6th and 8th. And speaking of KeeperNotes.com, if you haven't checked it out recently, please do. I've been adding a lot more content to the site, including galleries of photos from Endgame Cell Games, new stat links, and Woso Nerd type stories that I hope you guys enjoy. So be sure to give it a look. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Appreciate everyone who listens. I really appreciate anybody who shares this with someone who maybe hasn't heard of it before. And many thanks as always to Sean for putting this all together. But now she's everybody's girl. You know she's everybody's girl.